Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With Chairman Powell back in a spotlight later today when he speaks at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C., with more and more Fed officials expressing a willingness to do nothing until the uncertainty clears. It's been a major topic in this market over the last week or so. Mark Kiesel dropping by our studio here in New York, PIMCO's CIO of Credit. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning. So let's talk about your big theme for the year ahead, the global economy sinking lower Let's start by having a discussion about how policymakers worldwide are going to respond to that. So I think we're setting up for growth to slow. Um, We benefited significantly from the tax cuts in 2018, U.S. growth 3% real GDP. We think growth's going to slow to 2 to 2.5%. It could even be slower than that with the U.S.-China trade uncertainty. But I think this is going to allow the Fed to to take a step back and go more data-dependent going forward this year. So the data dependence that the Fed says they are, uh, and a market right now, a market participants that says, no, it's not about the data. It's about a market. Is it a market-dependent Fed or a data-dependent Fed? Well, I think what the markets are sensing is a lot of what you said, uncertainty. Uh, the global economy actually, we think, is slowing uh, at a slower rate than most people suspect, particularly China. Earnings expectations are too high. Earnings growth is slowing. And this uncertainty with the U.S.-China trade is, is a big deal. It's starting to impact confidence. So I think the leading indicators out there suggest that growth isn't, will, in fact, slow. And, and that, uh, combined with the fact that inflation is low under the Fed's target, inflationary expectations have come down, this allows the Fed to take a step back and wait. There's a big difference between recession risk and moving back towards what we did consider trend growth only 12, 18 months ago, Mark. That's a good point. I think the markets have, in some cases, like oil, and perhaps even equities and bonds overestimated the the likelihood of recession. If you look out over the next year, we think the chances of recession are maybe 15, 20 percent. Uh, yet the markets, you look at oil prices, pricing in a much higher chance of recession. Bond market rally recently has been pretty significant. So we would not chase bonds here. Uh, and in fact, we we actually think oil and, and owning some energy makes sense. If you look at the bond market now, are you clipping a coupon or you, can you actually, how do you clip a coupon with the yields where they are? Right. Well, I think you want to own, given what, how flat the yield curve is, and we were talking about this earlier, yeah. you're better off at the front end of the yield curve. Odds are the Fed will still raise rates, and therefore we will start to get some, some risk premium priced into the longer end. So all things equal, if you're going to own bonds, stay, stay in well, the front end. Okay, there's, that's some street. you see that jargon there? That's West Coast jargon. Is that what that Risk is? Risk premium and all that. It's part of the real yield, which you can see on uh, 1 p.m. Uh, Bloomberg 1 p.m. Yes, Mark, if you Bloomberg can come TV on real yield. It's sponsored by PIMCO. Okay, so all the more reason to say, <laughs> Mark, thank you for joining us. You're having extra croissant. Um, Mark, if, if I look at bonds and I look at the coupon and I want to clip it, I'm just a small little guy, what maturity do I look at? Is it, don't tell me it's a T-bill. Nobody's going to be able to eat on a T-bill. Sure. And and most people, when they refer to bonds, are talking about 10, 30 or bonds. Today, the 10-year U.S. Treasury, 270, the, the long bond at 3%. Um, 
there are times when you want to hold more cash. If you look at yeah. last year, cash outperformed most asset classes. Now is actually not a bad time to be sitting in more cash. Wait for yields to go up. And, and then deploy more money into bonds. So I'm really interested to see what you think is going to happen at the long end, because over the last week, we've had a massive improvement in risk appetite. And all we've seen happen with the Treasury curve is money come out of short-term debt instruments as risk aversion fades. What I don't see is real curve steepening. I don't see a Treasury curve that captures a fundamentally positive story about the economy in America. In fact, I think the Treasury curve is flatter now than it was on Friday. Um, that kind of tells you where we're at in the Treasury market. When am I going to start to see the back end pick up to reflect an economy that you say isn't as bad as people think it is? So I think if we do get a trade deal with China, I think that will start to get the economy going again, and you'll start to see that yield curve steepen. Um, these yields are very low right now. Uh, and so as long as we do not have a recession, if we grow at 2 and 2.5%, we think that 10 years is probably going to go back up to 3%. So you've got more, I think, yield upside right now, given the base case scenario where growth, uh, growth goes to two, two and a half. So let's think about your strategy as the year progresses. Are you saying sit in cash and as yields pick up at the longer end at duration as the year progresses? Is that the, the strategy for you guys? We, we like bonds longer term. So we are still of the view that rates are not going to break out on the, on the upside because inflation globally will still stay relatively low. At the same time, we think the market has near yeah. term brought yields down too low. Can I get a question in here, even though the real yield is no, sponsored can. by PIMCO? You I mean, can, of course. Can I join the party? <laughs> Please do. There's other things besides full faith and credit. Where's the opportunity in better quality high yield and actually quality corporate paper? So overall, we're favoring securitized products, not agencies, which, which are linked more to the housing market. We still have a constructive view on the consumer and housing. So we're going all Ginny Mae like we did 30 years ago? We like, we like non-agencies. We like agency mortgages. Within corporates, we want to stay high quality and investment grade. The, sure. what, the, the couple areas we like, we like bank and financials. We like REITs. We like the consumer, and we like energy. We think energy has, has self-corrected too low. We would own pipelines here. Okay, what kind of yield do you get on a, a debt instrument in the pipeline in the beleaguered American energy business? So you can basically get 5% uh, uh, on very high quality pipelines, uh, companies that are, are generating free cash flow of 5 6% right. annually, benefiting from the shale revolution. The United States is the biggest producer of energy now in the world. It's a okay. huge deal. But well, Mark, to be clear here, what you're playing is the volume story of oil in America, not the price. Exactly. And midstream is is the best sector in energy right now because it essentially is benefiting from vo increased volume growth throughout the shale regions. So does this mean that after the real yield sponsored by PIMCO, you're going to have the real barrel? Is that where this is heading? You can drop by for that program <laughs> drop too. Drop by for the real barrel, Jeff. Can I get a final question in on um, leverage loans, please, Mark? Because there's been a massive discussion about it and a huge turnaround and then a huge turnaround again. Where is PIMCO as a shop on leverage loans at the moment? So we, we have been very cautious uh, on, on credit risk overall. Um, we have been, for the most part, avoiding a lot of these leveraged loans. I will tell you, towards the second and third and fourth week of December, um, these loans were liquidated. There was forced selling. There were hedge fund unwinds. We saw selling in Asia. That was the first time, really, where we started to step in and take the other side. Where we're buying, we're being very selective. We're buying in companies that are non-cyclical. We're buying 
rel relatively unlevered credits, but we were literally getting at the end of the year six, seven percent on, on some pretty decent credits. So there, you know, the, the the strategy is to sit back, wait. There's going to be more volatility. Hold a lot of cash and deploy that cash as you see bottom up opportunities, which will will be coming. Mark Hazel. Great to have Mark with us. It is. Mark doesn't it's come enough to Anybody the else on PIMCO joining next week? I, I don't know. PIMCO okay. CIO of credit My joining us on, on the seriously, East Coast. Seriously, thank you for your support of what we're doing here. In the thank markets. you, Mark. Every, thank you. Each and every uh, day as well. John Farrow and Tom Keen with terrific news flow uh, across economics. And, of course, Fed speak today. Chairman Powell speaking with David Rubenstein, the Economic Club of New York. And two items this morning before we bring in our bundles of unit credit, and that is capital economics over in London severely marking down their EU outlook, John, to 1%, like 1.0%. Yeah. Uh, percent. And then we just heard Mark Kiesel of PIMCO, and within the wonderful jokes about uh, their support of your product, uh, the real yield, is, I'm sorry, he's got a pretty gloomy view on the American economy. A return to trend growth and, and drawing well, a big distinction between that and recessionary risk. Are, where are we? You, you know, with Unicredit, what have you done with your... You're, are you marking down your GDP numbers for America? Uh, no, and I, I'm afraid we're even more gloomy than, than PIMCO is because, yeah, as you just said and heard, so PIMCO expects a return towards potential. We think we go below potential in the second half of this year and even further down in 2020 so that we that we could see an, a recession there. So th that is well, our official say, forecast. Wait, wait, when you say we'll see a recession there, are you talking NBER recession? Sure. What's the catalyst for that? The catalyst is, well, I mean, we have been hearing frequently enough that re recoveries don't die of old age, most recently by Bernanke on Friday. Yeah. But we got to acknowledge that we are towards a later part of the cycle. And we're seeing, I think, um, closed output gaps. I, it's getting technical, but I know you like it here on this show. <laughs> um, so we get seeing closed output gaps around the globe. We're seeing growth slowing down, signs of fatigue in the global business cycle. The only economy, well, the only meaningful economy, if I could say so, um, that has decoupled so far was the US, but that's easily explained by this huge stimulus program. So that is just mask the underlying slowdown that we are going to see here as well. Once the impact of the stimulus fades, growth slows down, and that then exposes the underlying weaknesses. And we think this time the underlying weakness is in the corporate sector. Right. Uh, we have too much debt, we have not good ratings. Uh, we, now we have even lower oil prices, which is not good for investment spending. So the recession, we think, will look similar to what we saw in 2001. Not too bad in terms of real macro, and it comes mostly from the investment side. Why can't productivity pick up? Why can't we have a supply-side response in the way this administration thinks we will get one? I think we do probably see a bit of a pickup in productivity just because... Uh, the supply of labor um, is being depleted. You know, we're going, we're, we are closer to full employment and we need actually a pickup uh, in productivity to sustain some, some growth. But uh, in, in response to, to um, what the administration has done, I don't think there is anything that translates from the lower taxes, less regulation to higher productivity because I don't think we have seen the investment. That is the missing link there that would translate the politics to the real economy right. and that hasn't been there. Well... Within capital deepening, with the new technology, do we have any sense of what capital allocation is within 
our society. No, that is a tricky part. I know they have been... We focus on labor, but I'm sorry, the capital deployment is a mystery, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, so, I mean, to some extent, we can offset part of the, of the lack of um, availability of labor through artificial intelligence ma machines. So there's a productivity increase th yeah. th that we see. But of course, you always look at growth rates. So, you know, we, where we want to see higher growth rates, that means that this substitution of labor by capital, if you want, is happening at an accelerating pace. Right? It's not enough if it continues to grow at the same pace because there is no pickup in the growth rate. The pickup in the growth rate only happens when we have, an, we have a further acceleration, and I don't think this is going to happen. What are you looking for from the chairman later today? Well, there's a lot of copy and paste, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the tone has been set. I think the tone has been set at the December meeting. Markets didn't understand what the Fed was telling them. I think it was very obvious at that point already that the Fed got rattled. Markets didn't hear exactly the words they wanted to hear, so they threw a tantrum. And then we had John Williams and then lastly uh, the, the chair coming out and saying, all right, guys, we got it. We will be very careful and do everything you want. <laughs> so Giving Chairman Powell a bit of a free pass, his performance at the news conference was, let's just say, disappointing <laughs> relative to what he followed up with. It was totally inconsistent with what I saw in the minutes yesterday. Well, just in terms of the emphasis, well, the emphasis in the minutes is completely different to the emphasis that he delivered in the news conference in December. Well, I, I mean, I wrote a flash after the FOMC statement and said basically exactly what was in the, in the minutes, that the Fed's confidence was rattled and they have a look at it. I mean, they just changed a few words in the statement. They changed the dots. And from that on, it was very obvious how they thought and what the debate was. Yeah, Powell, he said, well, our plan is, our baseline is that. And he, the one thing that Marcus really hated was that he talked about the rundown of the balance sheet. And he shouldn't have used the word autopilot or whatever he well, said. Well, he didn't emphasize flexibility. Oh, he, the, but and the subsequently, is, he has. But the Fed is always flexible, right? That's what I think Richard Fisher said it a couple of days ago, when I don't know what the market has. That is normal Fed communication. And the Fed always takes changing uh, developments into account. They always do that. And I think it's a bit, almost a bit scary um, if, if this goes out to people who trust professionals in the sector, that professionals in the market do not know what Fed communication is, that they have a baseline, but they, if, th if the circumstances change, the Fed changes its Then I have to say, Ham, if enough people don't understand, then the problem is with the messenger, not with the individuals receiving the message. There's a real question about Chairman Powell's delivery over the last several months, never mind just the last month alone. I could continue this conversation all day. <laughs> Han Banholtz, joining us from Unicredit. Great to catch up with you. On China, and really the attendant knock-on effects to China and their knock-on effects back to us, Miranda Carr joins now from High Talk. Miranda, one of our themes this morning is a lot of fancy people we talk to marking down their economic growth estimates. We all understand that's got to affect China directly. Do you and your team have any guesstimate of China real GDP growth? Well, the real GDP growth has obviously slowed significantly in, in Q4 and particularly in December. Um, and hence why you've got all the, you're, we're not going to see a, the numbers come out next week. We're not going to see a, a real number reported. Um, but, the, um, but the real interesting thing about the, um, the inflation numbers out today is you've got, um, the market is reading that as a big drag on sort of economic you know, big sign of an economic slowdown. Um, whereas they're missing one key part of the um, the equation, 
um, which is that um, the a lot of the price falls were due to the capacity. They, they didn't shut all the capacity over the winter season, which is something they normally do um, ever since 2015. So you've had price falls owing to the slowdown, but also due to the um, due to the lack of capacity closures. So it's not entirely reflective of a of a huge slump in in all of the upstream pricing. So you're saying the uh, the base effects have effectively been sort of distorted somewhat here, Miranda. Yeah, I mean, if you look at 2015, when the last time we were facing really big global deflationary pressures from China, um, what China came out with was the supply-side reform, um, where they cut capacity and prices then shot up. And then suddenly there was, there was no longer a deflationary threat, there was inflation threat um, from China into 2016. Now, this time we're facing the same issue, deflationary threat coming out into global markets. Um, and so the question is, do they then start shutting capacity again? There's a lot less room for, to do that this time round. Um, and so the, the deflationary pressures could, could become significant as we come into, into H1. So what's your base case right now, Miranda? Because it's pretty easy at the moment to paint a very bearish picture of what is happening in terms of the deceleration of the Chinese economy. If you want a corporate, you can pick out Apple. If you want a data point, you can pick out many. You can pick out the PMI that came out over the last couple of weeks. You can pick out the latest PPI data as well. And Mm. for that matter, you can go on and on and on for China at the moment, including the auto sales picture we got painted earlier this week for us. What is your base case? Mm. Is it as bad as some of those data points tell us it is? Um. Some of those data points have other factors involved, but yes, China is facing a significant slowdown um, as we come into come into January. But the the key thing is the the monetary shift has already happened. I mean, the the monetary easing, sort of quite large scale monetary easing, already started in October, and that's when you start seeing the sort of turnaround in China's economy. So you've had already several months, and now they're talking about you know going back into sort of if you like some of the old school subsidies and tax cuts in order to try to stimulate the economy. So this means, although so Jan, February is always tricky because it's a spring festival, you, you, it's really hard to get a good read across on the data. Um, but as we come into Q2, a lot of the really sort of classic stimulus measures they're going to put, you know, infrastructure investment, monetary easing, tax cuts, um, support for the auto market, support for consumer spending, should start coming through and levelling things off. Because if you like, they've already taken the measures because they know how bad things are. Because things are, you know, the across the board have been very, very weak. One thing that I've struggled with though, Miranda, is understanding what is sort of marginal and what is substantial. So we're looking at the latest finance ministry proposal for a a bigger budget deficit, but only incrementally. It, It doesn't seem to me that China's firing everything all guns blazing at this slowdown just yet. What is the magnitude of the policy shift at the moment? Is it incremental or is it substantial enough? Well, the thing is, they've managed to create a special, a new class of debt, which is going to fund a lot of the infrastructure projects. Um, the fiscal deficit does not increase significantly, but what does increase is they have a new class of debt called special local government bonds. Now, these don't sit on the fiscal balance sheet. They don't sit on the corporate balance sheet. It's almost like a new a new debt class that China's invented. Um, and we're going to see about $2 trillion of that um, of bonds issues uh, to support infrastructure investment in 2019, yeah. up from about $1.3 trillion last year. So the debt comes in, but not in the not the fiscal deficit still looks okay. quite responsible. If we get if 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 we get the capital economics Europe of one percent GDP growth, 
Sockgen looking at America, a run rate of 1.8. PIMCO's two-ish and even to the low side with China challenges. If the rest of the world slows down, what does China do? Yeah, well, I mean, China is is slowing as well. The I mean, we expect that the growth target under the Central Economic Work Conference in December, the, you know, everyone now expects the growth target for this year to be lowered to 6 to 6.5, rather than trying to keep up at the 6.5 level of last year. Now, obviously, that's still a, uh, a sort of government target, which is, is not a reflection of what's going on at the moment. Um, so you're likely to see a much um, sharper slowdown in, in H1. But yeah, I mean, I think there's an exception um, expectation that China's growth will slow. The, the key question is obviously how much is the, the government can step in to try to, you know, ease off some of the pain. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, because one of the question marks, I think, for this year is really that how much they boost the property market. Because that, if you like, is the, is the big swing factor. If we go into another um, yeah. sort of real estate boom, then suddenly instead of looking at a, at a sort of China slowdown deflationary picture, you look at another sort of real estate sort of boom, which is not maybe helpful in the short term, but obviously then just creates much bigger problems in the longer term. It's really interesting to me that we've just had a conversation of about six, seven minutes on China and hardly if at all touched on the trade discussion. Miranda, some people assign a lot of importance to the trade negotiations as to what happens next with China and the Chinese economy. Do you? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, the the stopping the escalation of the trade dispute and not um, taking all the production out of China and, and stopping the, um, the the export growth is is a, is a big factor. That seems to be much more likely now. The, the trade the escalation yeah. of the trade dispute seems to have stopped. But I think it's going to shift. It's going to shift them into much more targeted, much more so the U.S. will target some of China's yeah. technologies or China's companies. And so there's going to be continued escalation, in, not, in, not in the trade in general, but you know there's still going to be conflict between the two sides. Yeah. Miranda Carr, thank you so much. A briefing on China this morning with Haitang uh, Securities. Greatly appreciate that as well. We are advantaged in certain divisions to have outstanding ability. One of the heritage items for Bloomberg has been auto analysis. I think of Kevin Tynan and Bloomberg Intelligence. And over in the Bloomberg Opinion aside, for years at the Financial Times, Christopher Bryant. Chris Bryant joins us from Berlin this morning on Ford and on the general auto industry as well. Chris, you have a stunning statistic from Credit Suisse that 18% of the bodies are going to go out the door in the coming years. Is that global? Does that include America as well? Well, I mean, Tom, I think that was a a European uh, figure, but to be honest, the exact same trends are affecting uh, the American car industry. They affect the European car industry. Clearly in Europe, uh, probably you could say moving faster towards an electric future due to the much stronger emission rules that we have here. And so there have been, I think, more reflection on the kind of job losses that we could see. But fundamentally, yes, electric vehicles are simpler to produce. Uh, A lot of the work can be outsourced 
course too. So it is reasonable to assume that all the people that are building combustion engines and related technology right now right. have to find something else to do in the future or uh, right. they'll lose their jobs. You use a beautiful British phrase that Pim Fox and I would never use, leaden-footed. Ah. <laughs> they have been leaden-footed. How leaden-footed has American automobile manufacturers been in Europe? Well, I would grade them, to be honest. I mean, General Motors uh, was criticized for taking a long time to pull out of Europe, but it did eventually pull the plug, sold the operations to Peugeot, and now it looks, uh, compared to Ford, uh, relatively fleet-footed. Uh, Ford is sort of um, taking a bit more time, uh, obviously, with a new CEO, wanted to think about uh, how exactly this should be done, and clearly a very sensitive thing to do as well. If you're going to cut jobs in Europe, you're going to expect some uh, political backlash and obviously pressure from the trade unions too. Ford has not said how many jobs they plan to cut yet um, but uh, some bad news across the industry today with Jaguar Land Rover saying as well that they would cut 4,500 jobs. Clearly neither company can tolerate making losses. Uh, lots of uh, different factors uh, putting pressure on their, their cash at the moment and they feel that enough's enough. Chris, where are the biggest losses going to come? Because we've noted in the past, like about six years ago, I think Ford closed three of their factories in Europe. Two of them were in the United Kingdom and one was in Belgium. Where do the cuts come now? Well, I mean, it's been quite a piecemeal approach from Ford so far. I mean, they have said they'll close a plant in Ford. They have said that there'll be some job losses in Germany, but no real detail today on, on which plants that could be affected. I mean, I think there is some nervousness around an engine plant in the UK. Uh, clearly, the United Kingdom is much in focus. Brexit hasn't happened yet, but if it does, it's going to create huge problems uh, for the car industry there. So that's clearly not helping the sentiment towards the economy. And, and of course, selling cars in the UK these days is tough and if uh, you sell cars in pounds by the time you convert the uh, revenue into dollars well you're not left with very much so that hasn't created a very appetizing picture for Ford in the UK which used to be you know one of its stronger international operations right now essentially Ford only makes money uh, in the United States so its entire international operations are kind of in focus China has been a, a disaster for the company over the last few months and obviously needs to be turned around too. Ford also has operations in Turkey. It's a joint venture. It makes those transit connect vans. How's the business outside of Europe for Ford in the region? Well, um, you know, Ford said today that uh, commercial vehicles uh, were a source of strength for the company. So I think that's one thing that they would try to protect. Uh, I'm not sure on the details in Turkey, but, you know, all its international operations are going to be uh, put under the microscope. In South America, very, very difficult. Sales in China, you know, plunging. Same problem for Jaguar Land Rover as well, by the way. Uh, they've exposed, obviously, uh, to uh, the, the shift in, in taste away from saloon cars that Jaguar sells towards SUVs. Uh, and so really, I mean, the, the, problem, the list of problems just keeps growing for both these companies. Well, is it structural to autos? I mean, you know, with, with the team that we have at Bloomberg, you know, I think about Jaguar this and Ford that and all that. But what's the total auto sales worldwide and are those unit sales going to come down 18% like the Credit Suisse statistic? Well, I'm not sure about unit sales, but um, simply put, it'll just become um, simpler to produce cars in the future. So yes, they may, they may well sell fewer of them if we're going to do more car sharing and ride hailing and, 
but the, the fundamental thing is that an electric motor isn't very complicated to produce compared to a, a combustion engine. And um, mm. in future, you know, it's much more uh, straightforward for uh, competitors to get well, into the industry these days because you don't need the kind of expertise that you had in the past, or at least that expertise is very different. And, and batteries, for example, probably uh, not going to be produced in Europe. They'll be produced by Asian manufacturers, maybe with some local production, but it won't be uh, value-added from, from the German manufacturers. Chris Bryan, thank you so much from Berlin this morning. Uh, an important essay, and a quick essay in Bloomberg Opinion on GM versus Ford in Europe. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.